time. So I'm, I'm really glad to be sharing a word with you today. Uh, we are going to be um, reading from Galatians 5, 16 to 25. So I invite you to follow along uh, either on the screen or um, in your Bible. And let's read God's word together. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, uh, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Would you just pray with me and for me as I begin? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that helps us understand your word. I pray that as I share this morning that you would be working in my heart, in the hearts of all who are listening, and that your spirit would teach us and mold us as we meet together today. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, if you have been tracking with us through the book of Galatians, we've been studying the book of Galatians, today's reading might seem a little out of place because Paul introduces some new ideas in, in a deeper way. He's kind of hinted, them, hinted at them in the past, but now he really gets into these uh, ideas, and it's mainly around this conflict between the flesh and the spirit. And I'll talk more about what that means in a little bit, but I want us to see how this passage today is actually connected with the rest of what we've been looking at in Galatians, because it's not necessarily apparent right away. Uh, because uh, one of the reasons I want to do this is because this is one of those passages that we tend to take one part, and one, we, take, we take this one really awesome part, and we kind of take it out and separate it from all the rest and make it its own thing. And you probably know the part I'm thinking about. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Right? This is a part of the, the scripture that is, that is just really beautiful and really elegant. And, and we tend to take it right out and we make it its own thing, the fruit of the Spirit, and we forget everything that's around it and why Paul put it there in the first place. Um, and so what I want to do today is to see the fruit of the Spirit in the context of what's happening in Galatians. Because if we understand how it fits into Paul's argument and Paul's story here, then we're going to actually know how it was supposed to apply to the church in Galatia, but also how it can apply to us today. So let's build that bridge. Let's see how this passage is connected with the rest of Galatians. And so uh, buckle up, 
I'm going to take about 30 seconds to go through the first five and a half chapters of Galatians just to bring us up to this point. So it starts with Paul being astonished and appalled. Why is he astonished? Because some people are perverting the gospel. They are preaching a false gospel, a false message. And the result is that the church is becoming confused about what the message of Christianity is really about. You see, some people in this culturally mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles were saying that to become a Christian, you had to basically become Jewish first and follow Jewish laws and customs. And you see, this was a Jewish, uh, sorry, this is a Jesus plus faith, that you need Jesus plus something else. And Paul calls this out as wrong. Uh, then he goes on to tell some personal stories to convince them that the truth of the gospel is this that we are justified, we are made right with God, not because of how we follow the law, but because Jesus perfectly followed the law. And by faith, we receive his right relationship with God because he took the punishment that we deserved for not following the law perfectly. And so in the end, we are released from what Paul says is the curse of the law. And Paul doesn't stop there. He says that if you really want to be under the law, if you want to be able to do enough good things to make God accept you, then you have to keep it absolutely perfectly, which of course no one can do. And so in the end, if you are under the law, trying to justify yourself before God by doing enough good works, then you are actually in slavery. And the only way to freedom is by faith in Jesus. That's the gospel. And that's what Paul has been talking about for five and a half chapters. He's convincing people that they don't have to be good enough to please God. It is only by faith in Jesus, who was good enough for us, that we are pleasing to God. So now you might be starting to see how this passage connects, because Paul here is anticipating the direction that people might take his message of freedom. That, that they might say, well, if we have freedom from the law, then that means we can do whatever we want. Right? He is anticipating this argument that he has faced in other churches as well, uh, that, that people might use the freedom of the gospel to indulge their sinful desires. Uh, and if you don't believe me, look back at verse 13 before this passage, uh, chapter 5, verse 13, where he says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Right? He is warning them here that there is a purpose and even a way to be free. There is a way that we can be free and be who we were actually made to be. And if you're like me, you might read this and think, well, that sounds great. Uh, th that's a good idea, Paul. I will be free. And, and I won't use that freedom in any kind of, of, of bad ways that indulge my own sinful desires, right? I won't abuse my liberty in Christ. Uh, but isn't there an inclination in all of our hearts to take just an inch of freedom and run with it, right? Uh, what's, what's the saying, Get, give him an inch and he'll take a mile? Right? That points to this temptation uh, for all of us that we, when we are given a little bit of freedom, a little bit of grace, then we take advantage of it and do whatever we want. 
And I don't know how well you remember middle school, but this was the story of my life in middle school. Right? My parents would give me an inch of freedom. They would say, oh, you can play with your friends for an hour after school, and then you need to go and do your homework. And of course, I would take that freedom, and I would run with it. And I would, I would be hanging with my friends, but I would also be going places I wasn't supposed to go. I would be doing things I wasn't supposed to be doing. And, and uh, I, would, I would use that opportunity of freedom, or I would use the freedom for an opportunity to satisfy my own desires. Uh, and Paul knows this struggle. He writes about it here, and he pinpoints the problem in this conflict. And now we get to the conflict between the flesh and the spirit. And Paul describes this conflict. He describes this battle that happens inside of people, uh, and in particular, in Christians. On the one side is the flesh. And that is the, the sinful nature that we are all born with, that, that it just incline our hearts to do what is wrong, to do what is against God. And then there is the Spirit of God, which Paul says earlier in Galatians, in Galatians 3, we receive the Spirit of God by believing in the true gospel in Jesus Christ. And so in setting up this picture for us, uh, of what is happening in our hearts and our minds, Paul is trying to help us understand. And here's, here's the key question is, what does true freedom in Christ really look like? And here's, here's, here's my answer. Here's my summary of this passage. And we're going to get into what this means. True freedom in the gospel does not mean simply doing whatever we want. It means walking in step with the Spirit of God. So true freedom in the gospel does not mean simply doing whatever we want. It means walking in step with the Spirit of God. So this past summer, uh, my family was able to take a, uh, a long road trip out west. And we drove from Colorado and then down through several national parks, saw the Grand Canyon, beautiful, amazing time. But we ended up in Las Vegas because, uh, one, the, the flights from Vegas back to Boston were cheap, and so that's where we flew out of. Uh, but two, it was uh, state number 49 in all 50 states that I have visited. So I, I had to go to Nevada. This is number 49. I still have Hawaii left. That's my last one. Uh, but we needed to go to Nevada. And so we, we stayed in Las Vegas for a night. And I don't know if you've been to Las Vegas. This was my first time. But Las Vegas does have a reputation, right? Uh, and you know what it is, right? What is Las Vegas' reputation is, is pretty much anything and everything goes. Anything is allowed, right? Say it with me. The, 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 the motto is, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, stays in Vegas right? And so uh, Vegas has this, has this kind of uh, ethos about it that says uh, anything goes. You are free to do anything, right? That's the definition of freedom. And, and kind of the overarching philosophy behind this is, well, if you can do whatever you want, if, if you are free to satisfy whatever desire of your heart or mind or body that you have, then this must be a pretty awesome place. To put it simply, if, if having the freedom to doing whatever, uh, if having the freedom to do whatever you want makes you happy, 
then Vegas should be the happiest place on earth. Right? Not Disney World. But, spoiler, it's not the happiest place on earth. Because not only are most people there not happy, they're not even really free. See, behind the, the bright lights and the, the amazing buildings and so much cool stuff, right, many people we encountered were actually in slavery. They were enslaved to things like the empty promises of gambling. They were enslaved to addictions, to substances of all kinds, right? And, and people are literally enslaved because other people are willing to pay in order to fulfill their desires of their own flesh. Right? There was an assumption of freedom, which has this glossy exterior and looks great on the outside, but it is rotten on the inside. And I know, I know that Las Vegas is not the only place this happens, right? I don't want to just pick on it. But it is a stark example that shows us that even with extreme freedom, the ability for people to do whatever they please, it does not lead to fulfillment, happiness, and peace, but it actually leads to brokenness, pain, and slavery. And this is what Paul is talking about when he talks about gratifying the desires of the flesh. If you look at the list of the works of the flesh, and I'm not going to go through all of them, right, you'll see that they're broken down into about four major pieces or parts. Uh, there, there is sexual brokenness. There is religious confusion. There are eight different words that speak to relational problems between people that are rooted in our own selfishness. And there is addiction or substance abuse. See, the flesh is self-focused, self-serving, self-glorifying. It's about what I want and not about what is good. Now, here's the thing. I could make this whole sermon about not going to places like Las Vegas, and we could all leave here feeling really good about ourselves because, oh yeah, we're, we're going to avoid places like that. But, as I was thinking about this this week, I think we actually all, in some way, create our own like little Las Vegases inside of our own hearts or in different parts of our lives where where we say anything goes, where we freely gratify the desires of our flesh. Don't we do that? I mean, maybe you don't go out to wild parties, but do you self-medicate your problems with substances like alcohol or food or something else? I mean, you might not seek out illicit relationships in person, but do you allow your mind to gratify the desires of the flesh. You might not be sitting at a slot machine, but are you addicted to some other distraction that promises entertainment or wealth, whether it's, it's gaming or social media or Netflix? Right? You might not be going after wealth or fame that is demonstrated in bright neon lights all over the place, but do you seek the same things 
in maintaining just the right image or having the perfect house or the, even, even the perfect family or successful job at the expense of other people, even sometimes the people closest to you. Or sometimes what I do, I, I think I just focus on the sins in this list that are the really outrageous sins, right? Um, things like orgies and witchcraft. And I say, well, uh, I'm not doing those, so I'm all right. But then I, f I conveniently forget that on that same list, and there's, there's no difference in, in level for these sins on Paul's list here, are things like fits of anger mm. or jealousy, right? And see, I think we all maintain or have the temptation to maintain these little Las Vegases in our own minds, in our own lives, where we battle. This is, this is the, this is the um, arena of our battle between our own idols and glorifying God. So what are those idols in your life? Ultimately, giving yourself over to them is not an expression of your freedom in Christ, but it's simply giving in to another kind of slavery. And Paul concludes this section in verse 21 by saying that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, just to be clear, does Paul mean that if you do any one of these things at any time that you're not a Christian? No. That's not what he's saying, because remember, he is talking to Christians. He is talking about the battle that exists within a Christian life, right? Between the flesh and the spirit, between the original sinful nature, but God's renewal of your own heart. But Paul is saying that if your life is characterized by these things, and it's really not a battle, then you probably need to be made alive in the first place. You are probably spiritually dead in the first place and need his spirit to make you alive because you can try all you want to avoid or resist these things on your own but resisting these things on your own does not make your relationship with god right any more than following the law and becoming jewish makes your relationship with god right the only thing that does this is faith in jesus that is what renews our hearts so, finally, here, here, here's what comes next. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit, right? And we see it now in its context. In relationship to all we have talked about so far, and I want you to see a couple things. One, it is not simply a list of good character traits that we need to work on developing. Because I think I was taught that a lot when I was growing up that here's this, here's this great list, and it's a beautiful list, and, and it, these are all great character traits, and maybe you should just pick one or two that you're not good at and try to work on this one, be a little bit more patient, have a little more self-control, maybe I'll work on this one this week and this one this week, and, um, and it's just something to work towards. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I really don't. First, first thing I want you to notice is that there is one singular fruit of the Spirit. There are works of the flesh that we've talked about, but there is a singular fruit of the Spirit. All of these things together make up the fruit of the Spirit. There is not the fruit of love and the fruit of joy and the fruit of peace and the fruit of patience, right? It is one singular 
fruit of the Spirit. You cannot just tease out individual attributes and just work on the ones you want. Or say, well, this comes naturally to me, so, you know, this, this is what I'm about, right? But I'm, I'm not really, uh, you know, gentleness is not my thing, so I don't, I don't really need to work on that, right? They are all together. They either grow together or they don't grow together. But second, and I think this is even more important, the fruit of the Spirit is not a goal. It's a result. I'm going to say that again, because this is, this, is, this is important. The fruit of the Spirit is not a goal. It is a result. It's not a goal to work towards, kind of like what I was taught. As if, as if we can create these characteristics in ourselves by our own will and effort. It is the result, it is the resulting character of a life that is transformed by faith in Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. When we have faith in Jesus Christ, then the Holy Spirit comes in, lives in us, and transforms us. And the fruit of the Spirit is just that. It is fruit. It is the result of that work of the Spirit in our lives. We don't create it. The Spirit does. And this is awesome to me. It, it means that this is God's work in me and not simply my own work. It means that my main effort is to maintain a deep dependence on the Spirit of God in my life. So the question becomes then, how do we stay in step with the Spirit? So back to our Vegas story. On the one night our family stayed in Vegas, we decided to try uh, a hamburger from one of Gordon Ramsay's restaurants. Um, my, my kids love cooking and eating and uh, watching MasterChef Junior and all like Gordon Ramsay stuff. It, they, they, like, they love him, right? Because he's a great cook. Um, and so they wanted to try one of his, his hamburgers, right? It was the cheapest restaurant we could go to that was owned by him. Uh, and and there, was, there was a restaurant a couple blocks from our hotel and so we decided to walk down there. And as we left our hotel and entered these crazy, busy, chaotic, loud streets of Vegas where you really can see all kinds of things and hear all kinds of things, this is what we did. My, my wife and my mother-in-law and I each took one of our sons and walked with them hand in hand down the streets of Vegas to our uh, restaurant uh, and we, we gave them a, a few tips or if not not tips instructions shall we say about what to do one don't take anything that anyone tries to hand you two don't touch anything and three don't wander off right and so long story short we got to the restaurant we ordered our $25 hamburgers, and they were good, but they weren't that good. Uh, and one of, one of my kids actually commented that uh, Gordon Ramsay must not be in the kitchen himself because his hamburger was not cooked correctly. So there's such little, like, chef critics, right? But, um, but that's, that's kind of how I see the Holy Spirit working in our lives. The Holy Spirit comes alongside us 
and in this world where we really do have freedom. We don't have to obey uh, each individual piece of the Jewish law to follow Christ. We have freedom to follow him in faith. But the Holy Spirit comes alongside us, and he instructs us, and he guides us, and he walks with us, and he counsels us. And that is how we stay in step with the Spirit, is by walking with him, staying in step with him. And Paul, Paul actually says it in four different ways here. And this, this is what I love about this passage is, is he's talking about these fruits of the Spirit. But the instructions for us as believers are this. And he says four different times, walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. So if there's one thing I want to leave you with today, it is to simply take advantage of this lifeline that God has given us to walk step by step with him. He has given us his Holy Spirit, and that is the only way to live in true freedom. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.